Would they love me? Would they welcome me if I came just as I am? Would we see each other? Would we really recognize one another? If we came just as we are, would we know ourselves as the unique, holy spirits that each one of us is? That is the question that's been with me all week long and this morning as I wrestle with the call to worship, with the story, would we see each other? Would we see ourselves if we came just as we are? In this universalist congregation of love and hope, we believe, we say it all the time, we believe in the inherent worth and dignity in the hope and possibility of each and every person. And here we make promises to one another and to ourselves. We promise to welcome and affirm and protect the light of each human heart, be it yours or mine or the strangers or the familiar. We make those promises here. And we do our best to live into them as best as we are able. So this story we heard this morning, this story about the king, it is in so many ways as old as time, right? We've heard it before. Some of you may have known the outcome of the story before we got there. We know this old familiar tale. The one about the king or the Messiah or the holy one that travels among us. And the unexpected hero, so often the lowly one, the only one who takes time and attention to be with them, who shares of the seemingly little of what they have, who gives that greatest gift of all. We know these stories, right? You know how they go. We know the story of the village of the angels in the desert. We know the Christian mantra that says, whatever you do unto the least of these, you do unto me. These are stories of care and kindness, of attention and hospitality. So often they are about how we welcome the new person in our midst, that person we haven't encountered before. How do we see them? How do we treat them? These are incredibly important questions. Questions, like I said, that have existed forever, so we know they are worth wrestling with. How might we give of our time and attention, our presence with one another? But there is so much to learn from these stories. I want to take a slightly different angle on them today. And to do that, to be able to wander with this story and these tales in a new way, I'm going to actually tell you a new story with a different outcome. This is one, too, that has been told for many, many years. And this particular telling was captured in the book, The Art of Possibility. And it goes like this. Deep in the woods in the late 18th century, there was a monastery. Now, this monastery had fallen on hard times. It was once part of a great order, but through persecution of various kinds, all the different pieces of this order had died off and had stopped being, and there was only this one monastery left of the whole order. And there were only five monks left in the house. There was the abbot, the leader, and there were four others. And all of them were over 70 years old. No one knew was joining. No one was coming by at all, as a matter of fact. It was clearly a dying order. 
Now, deep in the woods that surrounded the monastery, there was a little hut that a rabbi went to often to use as a hermitage, as a place to study. And one day, it occurred to the rabbi to maybe go out to that hut and visit with the rabbi and ask, do you have any advice for me in my dying order, any advice for this monastery? So the abbot went out, and he sat and talked with the rabbi, and they commiserated with one another. I know said the rabbi. I know how it is. The light has gone out of the people. They don't come anymore. No one comes to my synagogue anymore either. And they sat, the rabbi and the abbot, they sat and they wept together. And they read parts of the Torah and they spoke quietly together of deep things. And then the time came when the abbot needed to leave. And he said, oh, it's been wonderful spending time with you, commiserating with you, my dear friend. But have you no word for me, no advice on what to do with my dying monastery? Have you nothing? And the rabbi looked at him and said, no, I have no advice to give to you. I only can tell you what I see. And what I see is that the Messiah is among you. Well, the abbot took that message and he went away with it. The Messiah is among us. And he took it back to the four other monks there in the monastery and he told them about it and they all puzzled around with it quite a bit. What could this possibly mean, the Messiah is one of us? Well, one of us here at the monastery, could it be... It must be the abbot, right? I mean, he's the leader after all. He takes care of us. He casts the vision. It must be the abbot who is the Messiah then. Well, no, maybe maybe he means Brother Thomas. I mean, he's undoubtedly a holy man. But we know for sure it's not Brother Elrod. It could never be Brother Elrod. He is so crotchety and hard to live with. It couldn't be him. Well, what about Brother Philip? Well, he's awfully passive. He couldn't quite be the Messiah, could he? But he has this way of showing up at just the right moment when you need him. Maybe he is. Well, certainly he couldn't have meant me, right? I'm certainly not the Messiah, the other monks thought. Oh, it couldn't be me, could it? Oh, could I actually mean that much? Is it possible? And they contemplated this. They held it in their hearts. They talked quietly with one another. And they began to treat one another a little bit differently. Wondering if perhaps the Messiah was there among them. They began to treat one another with extraordinary respect. And just on the off chance that they themselves might be the Messiah, well, they started to treat themselves with some respect too. Now this forest where the monastery was was situated in a beautiful, beautiful part of the world, and occasionally people would come by hiking or for a picnic, and as they came by, as the weather turned, they looked and they saw how the monks were treating one another there at the monastery, and this aura of extraordinary respect kind of exuded from the place. This old place with the paths and the dilapidated chapel, it started to perk up a bit, and folks began to come by and come by again. And they brought their friends, and their friends brought their friends, and well, some younger folks came to visit and joined the order. And after a while, after a few years, this monastery came back to life, a thriving order once again, thanks to the rabbi's gift, thanks to his simple reflection back. The Messiah 
is among you. Now I hear this story and I think the rabbi's gift was such a simple one. It's one we all have the power to give. He sat quietly with his friend. He commiserated with them. They wept together. They shared their stories. They read the holy book. They talked and they sat and gave no advice. No advice at all. No suggestion of how to handle what was clearly troubling both of them. Instead, what the rabbi offered was a reflection. What he's really said. He used the language of the Messiah, but what he really said is, I see you. I see the light in you. I see the light in this place and in this order and in your company. I see you. The Messiah, the holy, is among you. Now, I love this story because it's not about someone coming in from the outside. It's not about a king or a stranger. It's about how we treat those who are perhaps most familiar to us of all. How might we treat ourselves? How might we treat each other? Our families, our friends, our coworkers, our neighbors. How might we be with them? What if we saw the light in all of us? It makes me think back to the way they describe this story. It couldn't possibly be crotchety brother Elrod, right? It couldn't be passive brother Philip. No, we can treat the holy, the leader like that. But what about those who are more difficult in our lives? What about the bus driver who's always late to pick up our kids or to get us to work? What about our landlord? What about the person who won't seem to get off their cell phone when they're driving or they're in front of us at the checkout line? Might there be light in each of them, too? What if the Messiah was among us, among them, the light of the world, the holy, the divine? It's that question that comes back. If we came just as we are, if I came just as I am, would we know one another? Would we see one another? Would we see the Holy Spirit that is each one of us? In this oh-too-busy-and-sometimes-very-lonely life, the important questions can fall away unless we are intentional about them. The important questions that call us back to our highest aspirations and our greatest hopes of how to be together. For me, this is just one of those questions. If we came just as we are, if I came just as I am, would we know one another? Would we see the divine light inside? Here at this church, we ask these questions. We remind ourselves about the real work of our lives. Here in this place, we tell the stories that pull us back, that remind us of who we hope to be, of the promises that we make to one another. When we say love is the spirit of this church, when we say that we strive to grow ever more fully into that spirit of love, to be love's people in the world, it requires things of us. These are promises we are making to ourselves and to each other. 
And they are big goals, no doubt about it. It is hard to be love's person. It is hard to live out the spirit of love with each and every person we encounter, and sometimes especially with ourselves. But I'll tell you, I believe the real work of the spiritual life happens right here on the ground. It happens in our lives. It happens with the people that we care about, the folks we are just meeting. It happens in community. This is the work we are about. Let me tell you a little bit about what I mean by this. Now, this is how I came to one of those moments of understanding it for myself. It was several years ago now, it was about 10 years back to be exact, and I was traveling. I was so lucky to be traveling with a group from Unity Church Unitarian across the river, and I was traveling with them to Hungary and Romania to visit some of our oldest Unitarian churches there in the Homeroad River Valley in Transylvania. I was going to spend a week learning about history and some of the important sites of our faith. I was going to help lead a summer camp. It was a wonderful trip. It was something I'd been excited about, a chance to deepen my understanding of our faith, to really know our roots around the world. Now, it was a full two weeks, and I have to say, for somebody who is on the introverted side, as much as I enjoyed all of it, Being with people for two weeks straight was a little bit of a challenge by the end. So it was a Sunday afternoon near the end of our trip. We had just had church kind of all morning and early afternoon, and I was sitting there in the living room of the minister's house. It was the first time I'd been alone in weeks, it felt like. And there I was, and I thought, okay, this is my moment, right? I have solitude. I can finally do my spiritual practice. This is great. I can read a little bit. I can sit in quiet meditation, and I can pray. And almost as soon as I thought these things, the loud voices began. This conversation started, and it started getting louder and louder. I could hear these voices speaking in Hungarian coming in through the window off the porch. The men of the village were gathering, all of them, it sounded like, out there on the porch, right outside of the window where I was trying to sit and have my deep spiritual moment. And I'll tell you, I was getting more and more disturbed, more bugged by the moment by these wonderful folks. And as I listened to them gather and laugh and begin to tell stories in a language I didn't understand, I remembered what they were about. They had gathered to do what was their particular duty, which was to finish drinking the rest of the communion wine that was left from Sunday morning service. So this was clearly going to get louder and louder as I sat there trying to have my spiritual moment. And I knew, too, that if they saw me, if they heard me in any way, They would pull me out there onto the porch with them. They were incredibly hospitable folks, and they were not going to allow someone to sit alone in a living room when there was drinking and conversation and stories to be had. So I kind of tucked myself into a corner there in the living room. I tried to tuck myself so nobody could see me through the window, and I turned the page carefully in my book let me tell you what I read, because it has stuck with me ever since. I thought I'd get a little paragraph, right, to take into meditation with me to myself. This is Pema Chodron's Comfortable with Uncertainty, page one. (laughs) (laughs) 
Spiritual awakening is frequently described as a journey to the top of a mountain. We leave our attachments and our worldliness behind and slowly make our way to the top. At the peak, we transcend all pain. The only problem with this metaphor is that we leave all others behind. Their suffering continues unrelieved by our personal escape. On the spiritual journey, the path goes down, not up, as if the mountain pointed toward the earth instead of the sky. Instead of transcending, of moving away from other creatures, we move toward them, toward turbulence and doubt, however we can. We explore all the reality, the unpredictability, the insecurity. We try not to push it away. If it takes years, if it takes lifetimes, we let things be as they are, at our own pace, Without speed or aggression, we move down and down and down. The real work of the spiritual life, the teacher said, is to go down the mountain toward the people, not up. Huh. (laughs) Was not what I wanted to hear that afternoon at all. Thank you very much that the real work of the spiritual life or that one piece of it, I would say, is to move down the mountain, to move toward the people, to, to move toward the unpredictability and the suffering and the uncertainty, to get right in the middle of it. Ah. So this tells me, it tells me over and over and over again that the work of the spiritual life, my work, our work, much of it, I believe, takes place right here, right now. It happens with our families and friends, with our co-workers in our church community, with the folks we live with. It starts with crotchety brother Elrod and passive brother Philip. It happens in this messy world. And some of it is very simple. I think if we go back to the story of the abbot and the rabbi, what they did together, it makes sense. They sat together. They shared the stories of their lives, what was important to them, what was troubling them. They read their holy books together, they reflected on it, they cried, they sat, and they didn't offer advice. It wasn't about judgment, it wasn't about suggestion, it was about simply being together and seeing one another, being present, and then offering the reflection back. I see the light in you. I see the light all around you. It is there. And that, that alone is enough to bring us back to life so often, or at least to open the door of possibility. It's not complicated, but it can be very, very difficult. With the old tapes we have playing in our head with the lure of television or computer or whatever it is that pulls us away from ourselves and each other. We need, I think, to push back, to lean into one another, to see ourselves and each other as the holy ones, the unique and precious ones that each of us are. So I ask you, How will you do this? What will you put down? Who will you promise in your own mind and heart 
to be with differently, to try again and again and again, if that's what it takes. How will we do this with each other? How will we see one another as the unique and holy ones that each of us are? May these questions stay with you as they stay with me as well. Amen.